assessing the the so-called conflict thesis. And a lovely old uh, illustration uh, here with the, the forces of science and their very scientific Gatling gun here shooting at the reactionary forces of uh, sort of medieval religious ways of thinking about things. Uh, and this is a kind of typical depiction um, that we have in our culture since at least the, around about the 19th century of the, the relationship between science and theology, science and religion, science and Christian, Christianity and so on. Indeed, the conflict thesis states that when science and theology have overlapping interests, and I think they do, at least on occasion, have overlapping interests, science is, at least more often than not, in an incompatible conflict with theology, where science is right and theology is wrong. That is the conflict thesis, as it would be held by folks like Jerry Coyne. You see from his book title here, Faith versus Fact. That's the kind of picture of things that he has. This is a fairly long quote, but it's a real good one. <laughs> so I put it up here for accuracy. This is uh, from the historian of science, uh, Peter Harrison. And uh, he says that advocates of the conflict thesis hold that there has been a perennial and ongoing conflict between science and religion and that such conflict is inevitable. The thesis found its definitive formulation in the 19th century. And despite powerful criticism by historians, is still commonly encountered in contemporary debates about science and religion. The current consensus amongst historians is that the history of science-religion relations is too complex to fit into any simple pattern of unremitting conflict. The conflict thesis is conceptually simplistic and at odds with the historical evidence. Yeah, I was recently reading uh, this book, Secularity and Science, by some sociologists who did a very wide-ranging survey of scientists in lots of different countries and, and cultures around the world. And they report that in the eight national contexts we studied, a substantial majority of scientists do not, do not believe that science and religion are intrinsically in conflict with each other. But most ancient cultures had worldviews that were not conducive to science. I mean, according to 
say, pantheistic worldviews, the natural world is an illusion, right? It's not, it's not real in a substantial sense, it's illusory. According to Greek polytheism, in many gods, the natural world is governed by these finite chaos-birthed gods who are often at odds and in conflict with one another. It's not a worldview that's really conducive to thinking, I'm going to study and come to understand the workings of the natural world. Philosopher of science Stephen Mayer from the States recounts how ancient Greek philosophers thought that nature reflected an underlying order, but they assumed that they could deduce how nature ought to behave from first principles, based upon only superficial observations of natural phenomena, or without observing nature at all. So the, the stereotypical ancient Greek philosopher thinking about the heavens would think, I wonder how planets move. Well, circles are the perfect shape, so planets must move in perfect circles. It's obvious. <laughs> they wouldn't really think to go and have a look. <laughs> Mayer explains that modern science was specifically inspired by the conviction that the universe is the product of a rational mind who designed the human mind to understand it. That there's a rational creator who made the world out there and the way that we think in here. And so we can have some kind of prior expectation that maybe there'll be an overlap between these two things because they both come from the same reliable rational source. The Indian philosopher Vishal Madhwadi notes that the scientific perspective flowered in Europe as an outworking of medieval biblical theology nurtured by the church. And I give you as an example of the church in medieval Europe here. From my own country, this is Salisbury Cathedral with the, the tallest cathedral spire in the country, if not in Europe. It says the Bible created and underpinned the scientific outlook going back to medieval times. More and more philosophers and historians of science trace the origins of the scientific, scientific revolution into its roots in medieval thinking. There's a lot of science in that building, in the architecture and so on, involved in making something like that. Or Salisbury Cathedral happens to have this clock, possibly dating from about 1386, so from the 14th century. It's thought to be one of the oldest working clocks in the world. The church was a patron of science and technology. As Alvin Plantinga says, modern science arose within the bosom of Christian theism. 
It's a shining example of the powers of reason which God has created us. It's a spectacular display of the, the image of God in us human beings. So, Christians are committed to taking science and the deliverances of contemporary science with the utmost seriousness. There's a very interesting quote from the British sociologist of science, Stephen Fuller. Uh, he says, while I cannot honestly say that I believe in a divine personal creator, no plausible alternative has yet been offered to justify the pursuit of science as a search for the ultimate systematic understanding of reality. Atheism as a positive doctrine has done precious little for science. He says science makes sense only if there is an overall design to nature that we are especially well equipped to fathom even though most of it has little bearing on our day-to-day -day animal survival. Humanity's creation in the image of God provides the clearest historical rationale for the rather specialised expenditure of effort associated with science. Isn't that fascinating? So there are many philosophical assumptions of science, as we said earlier, but I think there are philosophical assumptions of science that are actually warranted or justified by theism, such as that the natural world exhibits a rational order, that the human mind is, at least to a fair degree, able to understand the rational order displayed in the natural world. That human cognitive and sensory faculties are at least generally reliable. That the rational order displayed by the natural world cannot necessarily be deduced from first principles, like some Greek thinkers would think. So that observation and experimentation are useful things when doing science. That there are knowable objective values of truth and goodness and beauty. That the natural world isn't either an illusion or itself divine. And that the natural world isn't governed by multiple competing and or capricious gods. Now, there are, I think, two major sources of at least apparent conflict on occasion between science and theology. They are bad readings of scripture and bad philosophies of science. I'll say very little on the first except to quote St Augustine, who said that in matters that are so obscure and far beyond our vision, we may find in Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways without prejudice to the faith we have received. 
In such cases, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side or another of such a dispute that if further progress in the search for truth justly undermines this position, this interpretive position that we've taken, we too fall with it. As to bad philosophers of science, let me say a little more and highlight these four, starting with verificationism. You know, when we verify something with our empirical senses. According to the verification principle advanced by the logical positive movement of philosophers in the 1930s, or philosophers and sociologists and, and so on, uh, according to them, the, the meaningfulness of any statement that isn't just true by definition, for example, a square has four sides, okay, that's true by definition. The meaningfulness of any statement that's not just true by definition depends on its ability to be empirically verified, to check it out with the senses, at least in principle. For example, my mug has coffee in it is a meaningful statement, according to this approach, because you can empirically verify it by seeing, touching, smelling and tasting the coffee. But to say God exists is supposedly a meaningless statement that's neither true by definition nor empirically verifiable and thus literally meaningless, like nonsense poetry or scat singing. So A.J. Eyre, who made this approach uh, famous in his uh, book Language, Truth and Logic, uh, published in 1936, yeah, an Oxford University philosopher, um, rubbed shoulders with C.S. Lewis same generation. He said God is a metaphysical term and if God is a metaphysical term then it cannot even be probable that a God exists for to say that God exists is to make a, a metaphysical utterance which cannot be either true or false. If a putative proposition, a supposed statement, fails to satisfy the verification principle and is not a tautology, is not true by definition, then it is metaphysical and being metaphysical it's neither true nor false but literally senseless. And so philosophy in the Anglo-American world went through this period of everybody not discussing whether or not God exists but discussing whether it even made sense to claim that he might exist or not. <laughs> Can we even use language to have that discussion? Now the main problem among many, many facing verificationism is that it contradicts itself and it doesn't get worse 
for a position than that in philosophy. The verification principle is itself neither true by definition nor something that can be empirically verified. According to its own rule, if you apply that rule to itself, it says, no, meaningless. Oops. And indeed, although one cannot directly verify God's existence, several arguments for God can be framed using the same kind of indirect verification as used in scientific theory argumentation. So Basil Mitchell, another Oxford philosopher of science, said the, the logical positivist movement started as an attempt to make a clear demarcation between science and common sense on the one hand and metaphysics and theology on the other, trying to make this hermetically sealed distinction again, right? But work in the philosophy of science convinced people that what the logical positivists had said about science was not true. And by the time the philosophers of science had developed and amplified their accounts of how rationality works in science, people discovered that similar accounts applied equally well to the areas they had previously sought to exclude, namely theology and metaphysics. So saying you can't really make this hard and fast line of distinction. So as William Lane Craig says, the collapse of verificationism during the second half of the 20th century was undoubtedly the most important philosophical event of the century. Its demise brought about a resurgence of metaphysics, along with other traditional problems of philosophy that had been hitherto kind of suppressed by this verificationism. Accompanying this resurgence has come something new and altogether unanticipated, a renaissance, a rebirth in Christian philosophy. Scientism, we've already touched on in our last section about how we know Rosenberg saying, you know, we trust science is the only way to acquire knowledge. But again, there are many problems with this. Scientism, if you like, is kind of applying verificationism to how we know, to epistemology, rather than to meaning. When do we mean? It's applying it to when do we, how do we know? It sets up science as the only reliable, or perhaps the most reliable, pathway to rational belief, stroke knowledge. But like verificationism, scientism assumes the existence of a firm distinction or line of demarcation between science and philosophy in order to reject philosophy as a way of knowing and to exclude metaphysics from science. But as philosopher Francis Beckwith reports, the overwhelming consensus in philosophy of science is that demarcation criteria are doomed to failure. You can't make that distinction consistently. In other words, science is and always has been natural philosophy. And trying to demarcate and separate science, natural philosophy, from 
philosophy uh, leads to problems for science. The scientistic demand that every rational belief must be justified by scientific empirical evidence. Again, it's self-contradictory. It can't be justified by scientific empirical evidence. It leads to an infinite regress. If I say, okay, I'm not going to believe A until you give me some scientific empirical reasons to believe it. Call those reasons B. But why should I believe B? And that the information in B really does support the truth of A. Well, I shouldn't believe that unless I have some scientific empirical evidence. Let's call that C. D, E, do, do, do. Whoops. It's also open to obvious counterexamples, metaphysical, moral, etc. Rainbows are beautiful. It's not, you know, something that we empirically measure, but it sure is think, something I think I know from introspecting upon my experience of seeing a rainbow. So as historian John Somerville puts it in a, a trenchant uh, passage here, he says, most scientists are as horrified as anyone at the excesses of, for example, Nazi science. They may claim that it was not really science at all. But it's not a lack of experimental rigour that they are objecting to as much as the unrestrained use of Homo sapiens, whose humanity is being ignored. Thus, scientists are responding to ideas they may have learned as religious taboos and have never found an independent basis for. Science itself didn't teach them that humans shouldn't be treated as things. Two more. Naturalism. Uh, here's American astronomer Carl Sagan. Uh, the cosmos is all there ever was, is, or shall be. Famous statement from his TV series, Cosmos. Of course, this is a statement by a scientist, but we should bear in mind the fact that it's a metaphysical position. Not everything scientists say is scientific. And science is not, I would argue, an inherently naturalistic enterprise, as shown by its Christian origins historically. Uh, a scientific description or explanation of something that doesn't mention God does not thereby deny God or contradict theism. Indeed, any explanation of empirical data X in terms of some other material reality, call it Y, always leaves open the philosophical questions such as why does why exist? And is the existence of why that explains X, is it intended or unintended 
in its existence. Philosophical questions. And finally, what's called, and I mentioned it again in the first section, methodological naturalism. This is the way that the US-based National Academy of Sciences puts it. They say the statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes. The statements of science, to count as science, must invoke only natural things and processes. In other words, although science doesn't deny the existence of anything supernatural, it must never mention anything supernatural. It's like the horse here, you've got to put the blinkers on to anything supernatural. And then you're doing science. If you take the blinkers off, oh, oh dear, I'm not doing science anymore. But why must that be the case? Is this a good rule to adopt? Well, here's an atheist philosopher of science who thinks not. Bradley Monton argues this way. He says, if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories about reality. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. Now that's not quite the same thing as aiming for a true theory. So Monton argues that science is better off without being shackled by methodological naturalism. Science should just be a pursuit of truth, not a pursuit of the best naturalistic story we can tell. Back to the, uh, the survey book, uh, Secularity and Science, passage from the end that I, I thought was particularly apposite. They said, scientists who are atheist or agnostic do not identify with a religion or do not identify as religious or spiritual are located primarily in Western countries. Across national contexts, these scientists tend to be disproportionately male at elite institutions and in advanced stages of their careers. Although powerful now by virtue of their institutional status and career stage, we believe these scientists will not be leaders in the future science and religion dialogue. Just from a sociological perspective. Interesting. Let me uh, pause there again before we go on to the, our next section and uh, turn over some time to you to see if you had any uh, questions.